Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Episode 62 in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series features a woman with whom I do service work on an international Zoom meeting, Max A. We met a few years ago, and the pieces of her story I gleaned from her shares in that meeting made me want to know more. Max grew up in a horribly alcoholic home with a mother who later died of cirrhosis and organ failure from drinking. To escape the madness, Max began drinking herself at 13, obliterating the feelings wrought by her dysfunctional family. Her use of alcohol escalated through high school and college, well into her 20s. Seeking relief from her alcoholism and co-occurring clinical depression, she was prescribed Xanax, which opened the realm of drug addiction on top of everything else. By the time she hit the doors of AA nearly 22 years ago, Max was thoroughly licked, as old-timers like to say. She participated in the program for the first eight years while harboring her secret use and abuse of benzodiazepines. While she frantically tried to rationalize and then justify her use of benzos while in AA, the truth won out. She came clean to her sponsor and her groups, resetting her sobriety date in 2008. From that point on, Max's program took on a new meaning and importance. She connected as never before with the spiritual and service elements of AA. She works an active program from the inside of AA, sponsoring women with whom she has deep and meaningful relationships. With all the interviews I've done on this podcast, I'm continually impressed with the quality of sobriety and depth of commitment to the program that my guests demonstrate. Max's story is an ideal example of a woman's redemption from isolation, self-loathing, and spiritual emptiness to a life filled with fellowship and joy. So, take a few deep breaths, settle back, and relish this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Max A. Hi, I'm Max. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Max. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hi, Howard. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. You, you and I met each other a couple years ago on a meeting out of London that that we both attend. Is that well, right? Well, it wasn't a couple years ago, actually. Well, I guess it. Oh my God, isn't that amazing? It is a couple years ago. How surreal is that? I feel like it's a month ago, but you're right. It's <sighs> actually I know two, oh, oh, two years ago about. Yeah. Every day of the week, I get that mm -hmm. sense. I'm having a hard time remembering. <laughs> I know. Okay. What what day is it? What day? What year? You started doing some really important service work for that group, too, uh, with being a security person for a meeting <laughs> that's relatively uh, large. But in the beginning, there were a lot of Zoom bombers, weren't there? Well, in fact, I missed that part of in that particular meeting. I certainly okay. have seen uh -huh. a lot of that in other meetings. But um, when Me I was too. asked to do that security commitment, um, believe it or not, there haven't been any. And I'm so relieved because it can be a bit traumatic. It can be. Yeah. We have a meeting that I go to that has become a hybrid meeting now. So we have a, the Zoom projected on a screen by LCD projector. And then we've got a live meeting going on in the room with a microphone and and a, and a camera on the room, which is very cool. So we're able to, to join the two uh, meetings together. And 
Um, but what ended up happening was we got bombed for the first time in about a year, over a year, in that meeting. And it, it was it was shocking to be sitting there in the room seeing it up on the screen. Oh, yeah. As opposed to being in your own home and, and you know, you don't have anybody around you to react with. Mm. And so we ended up having to close the Zoom and then they opened it again. But... The security tricks are pretty important, aren't they? They really are, and we learned quickly. So you and I don't know each other all that well, except I always enjoy listening to you when I hear you share. Likewise. Most AA, for me, is getting to know people three to five minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you're going to meetings for years and years, those minutes can add up, but it doesn't give us the whole story, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast. Mm -hmm. How long have you been sober, by the way? Fourteen years. And but I've been in AA about twenty-two years because I had eight years uh-huh. before that. Okay, so what what is your current sobriety date? Uh, it's November twenty-second, two thousand and eight. So you've been sober fourteen years, uh, but had a period of eight years prior when you were sober. How long did you go out in between the eight years and the fourteen years? Not long, really. Um, I mean, I uh-huh. I was still going to meetings. I was still calling myself sober. Um, it I didn't realize that I'd gone out because I didn't pick up a drink. I was prescribed medication mm-hmm. and started taking it as prescribed and then started taking it as I prescribed. So it was kind of a slow descent into a slip, which I didn't even realize was happening until uh, after I checked myself into rehab. I, I went into rehab saying, I have eight years. I have eight years. <laughs> uh-huh. How solid was your eight-year program at that point when you started using the the medication irresponsibly? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think because on the one hand, I was, I was really part of the community. I was attending meetings. I had sponsees. I had a sponsor. Mm-hmm. So on the outside, it looked pretty solid. But obviously there was something wrong on the inside. Uh, I think, you know, that happens to many of us where we kind of, we look good on the outside, but there's problems happening. And I think for me, it was not being completely honest with how I felt and that I was experiencing a great deal of depression and didn't want to tell anybody. And that kind of slowly got worse. And then this medication that I would, which was Xanax, uh, which they do not prescribe that really anymore and less severe, but this was, you know, back then they were still prescribing it. They were, in fact, I was Uh prescribed it for sleep, which I think is unheard of now. Yeah. So it just, and, and of course my sponsor, I think rightly so said, I'm not a doctor and followed the correct protocol, which is that, Mm. um, it's, Mm -hmm. if it's something prescribed by a doctor and it was me that yeah. started lying about how much I was taking. I get it. So, and I think in retrospect, obviously looking at that particular type of medication, it's only something that I would start to develop a tolerance to and need more and take more. That's the nature of those medications, isn't it? Right. So they're they're pretty dangerous. Uh, my doctor did just keep refilling it. That That is, you know, we all have a part. And I think that was certainly a mistake. Yeah. You know, I asked a doctor, I think it was before my second back operation, if he could prescribe for me non-narcotic painkillers because I was having surgery right next to my spinal cord and 
the sciatic nerve, and it was it was pretty major, and the pain was just off the scale. Mm -hmm. And I said, can you prescribe something that's non-narcotic? Because I was sober and in the program. He said, yeah, I can do that. And I said, well, I'm curious. If you can do that, why do you prescribe narcotics so much? And he looked at me and he said, Howard, not every one of my patients is a recovering alcoholic. Mm, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, there are people out there who take them responsibly. But... Right. So I know a number of people who endured what you had to go through, sliding off, starting with the prescription. I know, in fact, a real close friend of mine just cashed in a 22-year chip for a desire chip. Mm. And it was about it was, t it was about painkillers mm -hmm. and taking them as prescribed and then going a little bit too far. Right. Let's, let's go ahead just so we can get kind of the whole backstory and kind of rewind before your first stint in sobriety, before you first came into AA. What were the circumstances under which you came into the program initially? I think I wasn't sure I was an alcoholic. Um, uh-huh. I started dating somebody um, who was going in and out of the program, and I had always wondered if I had alcoholism. I come from an alcoholic home, so there was always a little voice in the back of my head that I that I should be aware or careful. Um, and so, uh, you know, there was one of the, a, a night where this this person that I was dating asked, "Do you think you have a problem with alcohol?" And I, I said, uh -huh. "I don't know." Just that sentence, I don't know, was quite a shock to me and was the kind of the beginning of of a question that if I'm not sure, maybe I should look into this. And so when I first started, I kind of really just started going to meetings because I wanted to be with this guy. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't because I felt that I was about to die from alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So for probably about the first six months of attending meetings, I really wasn't sure if I was an alcoholic. Mm. Like they say, I heard, I didn't hear the similarities. I heard the differences. And mm. one night I was at this amazing meeting that, that is here in Los Angeles. And uh -huh. at the time, I mean, this was 22 years ago and they, uh -huh. they would have people there with 50 years. So people that had absolutely met Bill W. And I mean, these were extraordinary mm -hmm. stories. So I was drawn in by the community, but still wasn't sure if I qualified. And one night, the speaker got up and she shared my story. Hmm. And I burst into tears. And I, it, there were tears of relief at that point. Because not only did I realize that I am in fact an alcoholic, but that there was a solution. So that, that was kind of the first moment of clarity. Were you still drinking while you were going to those meetings before that moment of clarity? Indeed. In fact, I would drink on my way to meetings. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm afraid to say, you know, that's not a laughing matter, but uh, another great kind of well-known meeting here. And uh, I would drink on my way to go there. I'm ashamed to say, but I would. And I remember some woman turning to me and saying, wow, it smells like a brewery in here. <laughs> and I was like, I know, isn't that shocking? And it was me. It was me that smelled like that. So I was, uh -huh. I was absolutely um, drinking and using some other things while attending meetings. 
Now, while you were sitting in those meetings and hearing the messages from people who were in AA to stay sober and change their lives, and people are talking about sobriety all the time, Mm -hmm. what were you telling yourself to not identify to the point at which you would actually want to stop? Well, in a way, it was easy for me because what I had spent the last decade doing was was focusing on the alcoholism of my mother. Your mother. Yeah. So uh-huh. every when I got in, I was when I started going meet to meetings, I thought, yep, this is my mom. This is my mom. Hmm. My mom's the alcoholic. This this is what she did. It took time for me to shift that focus mm-hmm. of her alcoholism to mine. Yeah, you mentioned that you grew up in an alcoholic home. Your mother was she was an alcoholic when you were growing up? She was, and I I love that saying, alcohol doesn't run in my family, it gallops. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I mean, I didn't know she was an alcoholic until uh, we actually had an intervention. So I kind of grew up wondering, what is happening in this family? This doesn't seem like other families. How old were you when they had the intervention? I was, well, it was around, I think it was around 1989, 1990. And so... Uh I was probably around 22. Okay, so you were already an adult when that happened. Technically. (laughs) What was going on in your family of origin that may have predestined you to becoming a practicing alcoholic and later a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? It's really so complicated because some people refer to it as a disease. The other people refer to it as a disorder and a, or a mental mm-hmm. illness. So for me, I think it's kind of a combination of all those things. It's a rather unique mm-hmm. dis-ease. I like the, um, the hyphen in there. So I'm not entirely sure. I know I hear, we hear stories all the time about families who are people who come from families that had no alcoholism, no abuse, no trauma, no nothing, and still became alcoholic. So clearly it's not about the, a cause per se. Um, yeah. I think for me, it was probably a combination of things. There's, There was trauma in my family because the alcoholism was there. And so there mm-hmm. was a need for me to escape the pain. I get it. The One of the easiest ways, I think people escape from pain different ways, uh, the way I chose that just happened to be presented was through drinking. Through drinking, yeah. And then... You know, I've had people on the show um, who started drinking on their own accord as early as three to five years old. Yeah, that's amazing. Most start a little later than that for the purpose of wanting to get drunk. Mm-hmm. Your chief attraction to alcohol was around how it changed the way you feel and didn't want to feel? I think, yeah, it was a combination of, it was, I was 13, so it was a combination of, there's something wrong in my in my family. I don't know what it is. Uh-huh. And combined with, I want to be a grown-up and I want to be hanging out with the cool kids, <laughs> right? Which, yeah, right, I mean, it's yeah. kind of generally uh-huh. universal. And for whatever reason, uh, drinking a warm Budweiser felt like that would be the cool thing to do. And so then, uh, you know, once I started feeling the effects of alcohol, you know, I think unconsciously I thought, wow, I feel much better drunk than I do uh, sober. And so maybe, you know, without even realizing, I just thought this is this is this might be a solution for me to get through life a little easier. Yeah, that's a common refrain amongst us alcoholics. Mm -hmm. And 
13 seems to be one of the most popular ages. It does, doesn't it? In your family of origin, um, did you have a dad involved as well? Yes. And in fact, also half the family comes from the same lineage you do, that Eastern European uh, Jewish. And I, it, the, one of the funny things, I, you know, my grandmother was one of the most extraordinary people I've, I've ever known and love her dearly. One of the things she did get wrong is she used to say there are no Jewish alcoholics. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, okay, yeah. so maybe I have a 50-50 chance there that you know why they say that? Why? Why? Well, because most of the time it's kept so well secret. Yes. Looking around, you wouldn't notice. You start with wine, but I mean, that was the first time I ever really got to drink was at the Passover seders. Right, and drink the, right. And the wine. That was the only time the parents would let the kids drink, yes. right? And uh, you know, so you do it in the name of religion, but then you're turning the kid into an alcoholic. So what's worse? alcoholism has gotten pushed way, way down on the priority lists. You know, staying sober is, is not a top priority. There are a lot of other top priorities around. You had your first drink at 13. Did you continue drinking from 13 on, or was that just the first drinks that you had? That was just the first. I mean, it wasn't easy to, uh, you know, at that time yeah. to get our hands on alcohol. It wasn't every day at all. It was intermittent mm -hmm. and... um it was kind of the typical stealing from the parents' uh, bar, which, of course, at mm. that time, many parents had bars. And Now, do you have siblings? I do. I have a younger sister. Were you and she ever partners in crime around the uh, liquor cabinet or anything like that? No. In fact, I think we were competitors. Really? Yes, because she she was about, she was uh, a couple years younger. So there was enough of a uh -huh. difference that... We weren't we weren't in cohorts with that, um, but she also followed a very similar path that I did. And yet, then the older kids, of course, would you know, as I got older, it was unlimited. It seemed. I mean, I literally dressed up in my mom's clothes, uh, and would go to get served, as they said on the East Coast, <laughs> and I would walk in without an ID. And there was no question that I was probably sixteen years old, dressed up in my mom's clothes, and they just. I, uh -huh. I would say, can I have a case of beer? Here you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was just the, it, it, so it actually became incredibly easy to get alcohol. Yeah. What was your what was your drink of choice in those days? It it changed. I think it absolutely started with beer just because that was the easiest thing to get. And then um, it turned into rum, uh, rum and Coke or actually rum and tab. Because tab was the thing. And I think that was, you know, because the sugar. I, I really, I never really cared for the taste of alcohol. Um, but if you uh, mixed in a bag of sugar, uh, it made it oh, go yeah. down much better. So I think there was, there was rum, there were kamikazes. And then, of course, as the disease progressed, it didn't matter. It really didn't mm -hmm. matter. It wasn't about um, what it was. It was about anything to get me into that state. Mm -hmm. Did you hang with a certain group of kids when you were in junior high and let's say high school who liked to drink or who would get together to drink or party in other ways, maybe with marijuana? It's all we did. It's all we did. I mean, it was, it, when yeah. I, I remember there was a time in my life where 
I played the piano. I played the guitar. Mm-hmm. I was on the swim team. I was on the diving team. I, I took dancing lessons, et cetera, et cetera, right? Goes on and on and on. Uh-huh. And in a matter of probably a year at that, that pivotal time, mm-hmm. I just quit everything. And my primary purpose was, quote unquote, to party. And all my friends, all we did was we drank all the time whenever we could. And um, no surprise, I'd say about four out of the 10 of us now identify as sober alcoholics. Wow. So um, it was pretty and, and it might have been maybe everybody, all all communities are like that. But I think that. This particular, even though I was born in New York City, this particular, we I grew up kind of out in the country. Mm-hmm. And that was what we did. We got together and we drank and we smoked and we listened to music. That was all you could do. I mean, you you couldn't, there was no mall to hang out at. There was no diner. Um, you So yeah. that's what we did. That's interesting. That Sally, the story of Sally G uh, mm-hmm. that I told you about earlier, her story is very similar about growing up out mm-hmm. in the country. You know, getting the coolers full of beer in <laughs> yes. the back of the pickup, putting do- putting down the gate, and just oh, standing yeah. around and just, drinking and yeah. listening to music from the yeah. from the car. So it's, I guess it's a it's a pretty uh, common tale. It is. It is. What's that great film? Dazed and Confused. Uh, that was so, I mean, it's not quite the same era, but that was such a great, I was like, wow, that's exactly what it is. Just like go into the woods with beer, just, and sit around and drink. I I do remember, you know, freshman year of college and, um, I was shocked that I was with all these, uh, the floor was, was all women. And I couldn't believe that none of them were drinking. Uh, and Hmm. I was really surprised. But I was thrilled to be on my own and be able to drink as much as I mm-hmm. possibly could. And, mm-hmm. and of course, there were other substances that were more easily available, um, like cocaine. Mm. So I jumped into it with full force. Before I was even legal, like, I, you know, back east, it was 21 was the legal age to drink. So mm-hmm. when I was about 20 years old, and um, I, I think I was a sophomore in college, I ended up in the hospital one night from drinking and using. Hmm. And the next morning I woke up and I thought, wow, there's something really wrong. And I didn't know what it was. I honestly Hmm. did not know about alcoholism yet. Um, But I just thought there's something terribly wrong with me. So I woke up the next morning and I thought, all right, this is what I'm going to do. This is this is how my willpower is going (laughs) to work and and ultimately (laughs) fail. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit drugs. I'm going to quit smoking mm-hmm. cigarettes. I'm going to quit caffeine and I'm going to become a vegetarian. Oh, and I'm going to start going to bed at 7 p.m. Because that, I, oh, and then stop going to bars and parties. So it was about yeah. maybe, it was a huge, it was a full plan. <laughs> You set an incredibly high bar for yourself, didn't you? A, very, a really high bar. Believe it or not, like I actually started to do it. Really? The interesting wow. thing is, of course, when we take away um, what some will refer to as our medicine, so our alcohol, yeah. my life went from bad to worse. Hmm. So it didn't get better. It did not get better. I became completely agoraphobic. Hmm. 
I went to class and came home and I was terrified to be in the world. And I didn't know why. I didn't understand why suddenly I went from the seemingly drunk, outgoing college kid to somebody mm -hmm. who couldn't leave her dorm room. Did you ever make the connection between the, the booze and those feelings? Not really. I mean, I think that's why I, I decided to kind of cut everything out of my life because I didn't know which one, which was the problem. And so my, my thought was, my best thinking was, there's something wrong with me. I'm dying. I don't know what I have, but I have something. And I think one of the, you know, it started this path of me going to cardiologists, going to every doctor you can oh, imagine my. going, what's wrong with me? What's wrong? There's something wrong. I never heard a doctor saying there's nothing wrong with your heart. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing. And I was like, I don't, you don't understand. There has to be something wrong. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I, I mean, I'm grateful that I think there's so much more awareness about alcoholism now, especially in colleges. But at the time, I mean, nobody, it, I'd never even heard of it. No one had even mentioned it. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And because the disease of alcohol is the disease that tells us we don't right. have a disease, then if you set up a whole bunch of different things in your behavior that you're going to change, the disease will probably be the very last thing that you exactly. consider. And by that time, you will have failed at all the other things, so you need to drink anyway. So, to, you know, to me, it's almost like a, uh, it's, it's almost like an endless loop just going on and on. Um, did the doctors, I mean, it, it amazes me how many people go, and I was one of them, unfortunately, but uh, early on, my doctor never said anything to me, asked me any questions nope. about drinking. There was always a checkbox on mm -hmm. the form that says, how much do you drink? And of course, the acceptable amount at that time was, <laughs> uh, you know, two to five drinks a week or something. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I'll check that. Yeah. Go ahead. But when you were going in for all these medical situations were causing you to feel mm -hmm. the way you were feeling, did any of those doctors say anything to you about alcoholism? No, I think there was one time when I went into an ER situation where they asked me if I had taken any uh -huh. drugs. Mm. But other than that, uh, I don't recall anyone ever asking about my alcohol intake or anything like that. And I, part of it was probably like I presented as just this relatively healthy college, seemingly college kid there. She can't be yeah. an alcoholic. She can't be suffering from this already. Yeah. And when you're in college in that age, you're bulletproof anyway. Absolutely. So why not throw caution to the wind? So did your drinking just get progressively worse while you were in college or did it remain about the same throughout the years? Well, I stopped drinking on my own for several years. Yes. When was that? When I was 20 and ended up in the ER. And I knew intellectually somehow my drinking was connected to something terrible. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of those people that was able to stop drinking mm. without the help of an outside program. And that was also one of the reasons that when I first came into the program of AA that I thought, there's no way I'm an alcoholic. Because I stopped on my own. Yeah, that's a real irony for a lot of people because you prove to yourself that you're not an alcoholic by stopping alcoholic drinking for a period of time and are thus convinced that you can't possibly be because a real alcoholic couldn't do that. Now, there's like we look at the there's so many stages of alcoholism. So if I had been in the stage of alcoholism where I was completely physically addicted 
then then I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to. But I mean, thank God there's one of the stories in the big book that that was mm-hmm. my story that did talk about somebody mm-hmm. who had stopped and then, of course, started again. And, and that was the story of me. I Eventually, I did pick up a drink. How was your life during those years? How many years did you stay dry? I think I stayed dry for about four years, and they were the worst years of my life. Were you engaged in any other kind of substances or behavior that might have taken the place of alcohol at that time, or were you clearly miserable because you weren't able to drink? I was completely miserable, but I didn't know why. And I think the substitute, Uh. if there is one was not a substance, but was control. Don't do this, don't do this, this will make you safe. And of course, Mm -hmm. nothing really worked, but that was my best thinking. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying listening to AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth edition. It's a quick and easy way to hear the big book wherever you are, whenever you want. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. So we're talking about from the time you were what twenty until let's say right. twenty four that you were mm-hmm. that you were dry. What kind of circumstances occurred that made you pick up again? Uh, <laughs> it makes me laugh because it's such a it's such a typical classic story. This <laughs> is so not unique. But um, I was at a bar and there was a guy uh, playing some blues music. And I thought, Mm -hmm. wow, I like that guy. That guy is going to be my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and it wasn't a conscious thought, but there was something um, in retrospect where I thought, I'm probably going to start drinking again. And Hmm. he came and sat at our table and he said, would you like a beer? And I just said, yes. Kind of like the stories, in the you know, maybe maybe a little yeah. something would be good in this milk. Then I just started drinking the beer and I thought, well, we're going to see what happens. <laughs> so ready, set, go. Ready, set, go. And, and like they say, the disease was doing push-ups. Mm-hmm. And I, in a way, fortunately, kind of hit bottom pretty quickly. What did that bottom look like? What, what did the descent look like? The descent, I, I actually had a couple bottoms. But the first one was that I started noticing, oh, wow, I, I'm drinking alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also started taking uh, benzos as well. And so oh, I was drinking okay. and yeah. taking benzos. And I was smart enough to know that that was a potentially dangerous mix. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking, wow, you know, I'm really lucky that I wake up in the morning the way I'm drinking and using. And so I think it was that was the kind of a moment of, of clarity where I thought this is going down a dark path and also watching my mother slowly die from this disease that was going on simultaneously yes so it's like as my disease was developing i was watching hers Mm. you know 40 years ahead and seeing her going in and out of the hospital with cirrhosis and um all the things that happen when you have end-stage alcoholism so i think i started going oh wow i'm i see my future here 
and it doesn't look good. That's horrible to have to watch a loved one go through that mm -hmm. while you're considering the fact that that might be you one day. Right. Hmm. So what became of your of your mother? She died of alcoholism. Uh, they don't they don't put that on the death certificate. They put the the yeah. fun, uh, the strange thing is they put um, full organ failure. I think that was the yeah. caused by cirrhosis, and um, it was brutal. Many of us have known or loved people that have gone through that. We see it, mm -hmm. and it was devastating to watch this really glorious woman um, who was mm -hmm. smart and. Uh, talented and and had so much to give this world mm -hmm. be taken out so early and in such just such a dark way and and like yeah. in many cases like in alcoholism it doesn't just take out that person the ripple effect is i mean it almost killed all of us so it's in a way i feel like i mm. survived her alcoholism and then mine so as you were descending and hitting bottom, you were seeing yourself a number of years hence exactly where your mother was at that time. Yes, not quite. I mean, I actually never developed cirrhosis, uh -huh. but I I was kind of aware of the those decisions I would make that where I would say, I'm never drinking and driving again. And the next thing I know, I'm drinking and driving again. So I did start to see the similarities. Mm -hmm. And then fortunately... Um, I was, I did actually have four years sobriety when she finally passed away. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, acute awareness of what was happening to her and what potentially could happen to me. So she died prior to you picking up that beer in that bar. No, she died after. She died after that. Yeah, okay. she died okay. after. She, I was four, I was four yeah. years sober when she passed away. Now that was my first sobriety. So that was that okay, was it back in um, 2003. I was in AA. Okay. So tell me how you got to the first go around with AA. What what did that look like? <laughs> Lots of tattoos. Uh, not on me. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the first meetings I went to out here in Los Angeles, huh. I walked in and through this, my Escobo was my boyfriend at the time. And... I uh -huh. walked in and I probably was one of the very few who were not covered in tattoos. And it was a very <laughs> much this gang of previous L.A. punk rock musicians. And I have never felt so out of place. <laughs> and I yet I was so welcomed. Uh -huh. And thank God that's what we do in in living sober is that we are inclusive um that people are invited and included no matter now i know we're not perfect at that and i know certainly in the history of aa we are not perfect at that right. um but there's i think we've improved greatly and continue to learn and improve so i was welcome into this kind of it it felt I felt like I was in CBGBs, you know. I was just like, "What's happening here? Who are these people?" And these these extraordinary women um, would put me on their couch and talk to me and let me just be with them. And um, and I thought, uh, "This is an amazing community." And for the first time, I mean, I had really searched for so many years to find my place in this world. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, I even spent time uh, hanging out with some Orthodox Jews. 
uh, where I thought mm-hmm. maybe I have to, maybe that's the path, right, to sobriety. <laughs> but of course, the Reddies, right. they all had yeah. like Crown Royale, uh, you know, all over the place. So that didn't work out. And I even, I think I spent a weekend with some Mormons because I thought, well, they don't drink. And I was uh-huh. like, ah, not really into their their outfits. And so that didn't work out. <laughs> so, so those those things were prior to AA, or were you? Those were all prior to AA. And then when I suddenly found myself in that meeting, I thought, my God, why do I feel so at home with all these people that I, I really don't have a lot in common with? Yeah. So you, you went to your first meetings with your your boyfriend at the time. Uh, yes. How long was he? Uh, how long was he in your life? Well, the very no surprise. <laughs> That did Uh did not last long at all. (laughs) Yes, that ended very quickly. And uh, I was pretty devastated because, of course, he was my higher power. And fortunately, I had enough sense in me to think, you know what? I still want to be a part of this program. And I stayed. I, I went essentially for him and I stayed for me. That's great. Did you do women's meetings uh, in addition to co-ed meetings? I did, thank goodness, because that, I think, was one of the, the safest places, I felt. Yeah, so I've asked, it's been a while since I've asked this question of a woman guest on the program, but what's so different about going to an all-woman meeting versus going to a mixed meeting? That is such a good question, and I think it's different for everybody, right? Because there, um, there are people that would say it doesn't matter, or that it they're more uncomfortable in it in the same sex meetings mm-hmm. and I mean, on the one hand, like many women I hear share, I didn't trust women. Uh, I had an alcoholic mother who was horrible i mean she her disease turned her into a monster of a mother, and so I really didn't feel necessarily trusting of women uh-huh. but it also being a straight female, it was a safer place for me to be so that I could kind of take away the um, the dazzle of crushes and distraction of, especially, you know, uh-huh. the age that I kind of came in, I was, it was very easy to be distracted. Um, and this helped uh, keep the focus on sobriety and learning to trust women. Yeah. And that's, that's a real important part. And I'm sure there were plenty of people out there who wouldn't mind you being distracted to their benefit. (laughs) But I've always gone to men's meetings. I always have a mix of men's meetings in my Mm. rotation throughout the week. Big book studies, step studies. It's a different energy, I find, in Mm -hmm. men's meetings. And and it doesn't mean we're not discussing the exact same topics as in a mixed meeting. But there's something about men getting vulnerable in a a room full of men than there is in a Mm -hmm. co-ed meeting. Some men are able to do it in either place. But I've always felt a little bit inhibited mm-hmm. with regard to vulnerability. Right. And there was a time at which I only went to men's meetings. Mm. And then going back to mixed meetings felt wrong, felt weird. You know, who are these women in this <laughs> yes. meeting? How did yeah. they get in? But uh, did you get yourself a sponsor when you first came in? I did right away, pretty much, yes. And uh-huh. uh, I, there was the, the person I picked out, I picked her out because I liked the way she looked. And I like uh-huh. the color of her hair and the way she dressed. <laughs> uh, you know, I, in a sense, I picked her out for all the wrong, the, you know, I, there's really no wrong reason. No, that's reasonable. But I had no idea if, if she had a good program or not. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, people were very, I mean, I wouldn't have if not for 
the nudge from other sober people saying, who's your sponsor? Get a sponsor. Get a sponsor. So you waited a while? Not too long, really. That's good. Yeah. I, I waited almost a year and I almost went out. So. Oh, that is pretty long. Firsthand, I know the risks of not getting a sponsor, what that can do. So she worked you through the 12 steps. How, how long did that take? I didn't get through the 12 steps with her. You didn't? No, not with the first one. Uh, with the second one. And this is still within your initial eight years of sobriety in AA. Exactly. Yes. So what was the outcome? What was the result after you got done working the 12 steps? Did you have that spiritual awakening? And how did that compare with how you felt previously about your own spirituality? I, I remember when we started reading, when I started reading the literature and hearing people share, mm -hmm. it occurred to me that I'd never really thought about these things before. Mm -hmm. I never thought about spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it was because... My family was very much more focused on intelligence yeah. than on anything else mm -hmm. and uh, achievement. But um, it was really slow. There's absolutely no white light experience for me. I think I'm still here. I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. um, I still feel like I have so far to, to go in that, uh -huh. in that realm. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the pivotal moments, there's a couple, but the one I can think of that really blew my mind was when I had the first four years of sobriety mm -hmm. and my mom was in the hospital mm. and she was on a ventilator. She was really not, I mean, mm. she was not going to survive. Yeah. And I, I mean, I hated her. I, my heart was filled with mm -hmm. hate, but by this point I had gotten through the steps. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so I had acknowledged my part and I had, made an amends to her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, despite my best thinking, which was do not go fly across the country to go be with mm -hmm. her, my sponsor and my sober, sober support group said, get on a plane and go. Mm -hmm. And I went on a plane and I went into the, to the hospital, into the ICU and mm -hmm. saw this, you know, fragile, very unwell mother who I'd actually not seen in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and I, I grabbed her hand and I just kept saying, I love you. I love you. And I was like, what is happening? Mm. Who am I? And I meant it. I wasn't just saying, I meant it. Like I felt love for this woman that I had despised that had hurt me greatly. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, these steps are miraculous because I am doing something that I never thought in a million years I would be able to do. So I guess for lack of a better term, that was a spiritual experience, wasn't it? It absolutely was. And I think it was, yeah. Did you acknowledge it as that when it was happening or was that something you later thought back on and labeled it that? I don't think I label at the time. I don't think I thought this is a spiritual experience. I think at the time I thought AA is amazing <laughs> okay. or like sobriety is amazing. I think in retrospect, I saw that how the, the steps had opened my heart and allowed me to forgive and love. Mm -hmm. And that was, even though like I had probably experienced that, that was really such a, that was just an explosion of it. Mm. Um, that really almost knocked me off my feet because I couldn't believe 
that I was, I felt like I had superpowers suddenly. I felt like I was doing things that I never dreamed I could do, uh, sober or not sober. So that had a really transformative effect on your life, didn't it? It did. I just felt like, okay, I'm. if this is what 12 Steps will bring me, I'm in. That's a beautiful, beautiful yeah. story. How yeah. long after that did she pass? Uh, she passed actually a couple days later. So I had just got, I got there just in time. What gratitude you must have had for having the people urge you to go. <laughs> yes, I was quite mad at, at them at first, and I thought, you guys are crazy. That's definitely a God thing. Yeah. So um, can you kind of walk us up to the first slip, the eight years? What was your experience like during those eight years? You mentioned earlier that you kind of got away from the program to a certain extent before you actually slipped. Uh, can can you kind of un, unravel some of that? Sure, because I do. I think it's so important. I always try to share about that yeah. too at meetings because like they say, um, a smart person learns from their experience, but a wise person learns from others. And so I always think if I can say something that will, you know, help inspire somebody to not make the same mistake I did. Mm -hmm. That would be great. So I think what it was is that I was going to meetings. I was a social sober person. I get it. And I wasn't truly actively in the steps. I've kind of felt, ah, I've worked the steps. I'm done. Um, I wasn't quite being honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was just this, these little things. And I think because I have, like many people, I consider myself with dual diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I have clinical depression as well. And that really started seeping in. I always kind of see it as my depression and my alcoholism, like a vine, two vines that I've just, com they're completely entwined. Mm -hmm. They feed off each other. They love each other. And it's very hard sometimes to separate those two things out. Yeah. And say, okay, this is this, and this is this, and this I need to go to a meeting for, and this is I need outside help for. And so I think I started to struggle with not treating uh, one thing, which led to the demise in alcoholism, which led to my thinking that I couldn't handle my feelings sober anymore. Yeah, I get that. Well, so so it sounds like you were treating the fellowship as a social outlet as opposed to a service outlet. Yes. And then realizing or getting diagnosed with the clinical depression, my experience with that is, uh, in fact, you can listen to the interview with me, episode number 50, but... Oh, yes, I'd love to. One of the things was, the big mistake that I made was thinking that I could deal with my depression through working the 12 steps or mm -hmm. because I was dealing with my depression, I would let that guide me towards how to work the steps. And so neither solution was very workable because, mm -hmm. you know, when we've got clinical depression, there is a missing molecule. There is a part of us that has the mental illness. Mm -hmm. And then you add to that all of the well-meaning people who know what the blues mm -hmm. feel like, you know, they get the blues for a few mm -hmm. days and they think they know. Take a bath. Right, right. Uh, just, you know, do some more, light, you a know, light a candle, do another gratitude <laughs> list. And all of those things are fine for people who mm -hmm. have the occasional down days. But mm. it's everything you said about the intertwining of the two diseases is absolutely spot on. And uh, mm. were you, were you, medicated at the time for the depression? I was, although my sponsor was 
at the time was very supportive. One of the reasons, you know, we talked about my first sponsor, um, who was a wonderful person Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm still friends with her. Um, but one of the big issues for me and, and I think AA is a really clear, Mm -hmm. they have pamphlets on it. They're there. It's very clear. We are not doctors. We are not here to say whether you should take medication or not. And unfortunately this first sponsor that I had, um, when I, I just kind of casually mentioned that I was taking antidepressants and she said, Oh, I can't sponsor you. Mm. This was after I'd really opened up and told her some very personal things. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, I was devastated and I felt betrayed. And, uh, I am so grateful that I at least still had the gift of desperation that I thought I'm not going to quit AA because of this. Um, so I have a very uh, personal and strong opinion about about that, about that um, it's an outside opinion thing for doctors. But yes, I was um, taking antidepressants at the time and uh, they just, they weren't helping enough. Enough, yeah, I get that. And for me, I needed to be treated, I, I probably 15 different antidepressants over the years. Yeah, me too. Because they just don't know how they work. So they, they keep prescribing till you hit a good combination. <laughs> the combination know. I've been on for the last 10 years finally was attributable to a DNA, specialized DNA <gasps> test that they have, where the test takes a look at the different profiles with regard to the DNA of the individual with the profiles of the meds and how they interact chemically. And so it was right on. The drugs that had worked for me were the ones that that test recommended. The ones that had been a dismal failure were ones that it predicted that. So that was... How interesting. That was a good thing. But I don't know. It sounds to me like you're passionate about this. And I know I have been over the years. I felt almost an obligation or a service commitment to talk about antidepressants and being depressed from time to time in a meeting because it it needs to be it needs to be talked about when you were first taking the medications uh did they work or did they you mentioned that the they did at first and then they kind of you know i've always thought that that we're in the dark ages with this in a sense that someday you know 100 years from now they'll be like what they gave people Prozac? That's like leeches yeah, were the solution. Yeah. But, you know, that's the best we have right now. Things are going to grow and evolve and learn. So I have taken many, many different types as well. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a similar path because um, they they worked and then they didn't work. And then there is. It's a lot of trial and error. It's a, it's a dartboard. And you just like, let's try this. Let's try this. It really is. And as a matter of fact, what I often find in any meeting where I bring up the fact that I'm a clinical, that I have clinical depression, the disease of clinical depression, um, not the mood of depression, but the disease of clinical depression, how many people come up to me after the meeting and say, man, I'm so glad you talked about it. I've never felt comfortable yes. letting people know that I'm depressed or that I'm currently mm-hmm. on a particular type of antidepressant medication. And so, you know, I view that as a service. I, I'm not a I'm not a soapbox um, evangelist for it or anything, but it's important for certain people. It's very important. So when you slipped, you said it was because you were taking what what was was that the Xanax that you mentioned earlier? It was. I was prescribed Xanax to sleep. 
which it still just blows my mind. Who who was that um, a psychiatrist or your regular medical doctor who prescribed that? Regular medical doctor. Now, for the meds that you took for your antidepressant over the years, were those prescribed by psychiatrists? Yes. So that those were I you know generally always went to a psychiatrist for that. Oftentimes GPs and doctors of internal medicine only have a very limited knowledge of uh, depression and the treatments for that. I wonder whether your psychiatrist would have prescribed, knowing what he would know about you, the addiction, that mm. he would prescribe something like Xanax. Did, did that ever, did that ever bug you when you thought about it? Well, I think at the time it was not uncommon. It was, it was like I was right on that cusp okay. because then in the you know, the second rehab that I went into after I slipped on the Xanax, the new psychiatrist I had, she, uh, by this time she said, I would, would never prescribe that for I you. Like, absolutely. And I would, you know, of course I was like, please, please, I can't live without <laughs> it. Like I have so much anxiety. And she said, no, she said, I'm not, I'm not, you cannot have benzodiazepines at all. And I was like, but you don't understand. I've been taking them for years. I must have them. Why would the doctor prescribe them if I can't have them? And she, she said, because now we know that they are absolutely horrible and an addictive and really and she kind of really had to explain it to me in in great detail about how they work and how they really don't work you mentioned going right into treatment what what was the trajectory into treatment well i've been taking the xanax probably for about a year uh -huh. while going to meetings and just and just thinking i'm sober i'm not drinking this these are prescribed medications i'm not drinking i'm sober but you weren't taking them as prescribed. I was not. So by the time I, uh, you know, unfortunately, without realizing it, I was, I was, you know, taking that medication, which was making me even more depressed as it, as it does. So by the time I entered rehab, I, I was dependent on it mm. and I, it had made me severely, severely depressed. I mean, I could barely function. Yeah. I'm sorry you had to go through that. How long were you in rehab? I was in rehab for months and months. I didn't want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember when I first got there and they, I got, I, I went, they had a big book on the bed yeah. and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't need the big book. That's not what I, I need. Like, I need the best. Where's the Mayo Clinic <laughs> doctors? Like, that's what I need. I need some yeah, kind of yeah. serious help here. Yeah. Don't don't put that big book in my face. And they said, yeah, we're going to we're going to put you in the white van and we're going to take you to meetings. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I've worked the steps. I had sponsees. That's not what I need. Huh. So I kind of gotten. And then, of course, it, it, look, it was a combination of outside help and and I needed to really get back into the program. So you saw a real difference in going to AA when you were an alcoholic versus when you were hooked on Xanax. It sounds to me like you looked at it as two separate programs or two separate sides of the same program. Uh, because when we're sitting in AA meetings, don't we hear about people who are cross-addicted? Yes, but I still thought um, I, it was prescribed. I'm not buying it on the street. Yeah. <laughs> so it, how can it be wrong? When you get out of treatment, do you go straight back to AA? 
I did right away. Yeah. I slipped at eight years and then started. I didn't start my time right over. No. That is another remarkable thing about AA is that nobody said, because when I went into rehab, I said, hey, I have eight years. I have not slipped. I was adamant mm-hmm. about it. And and I would go to meetings and, and I would be in this car with all these newcomers that say, yeah. I have a day, I have a two days, I have three days. And I'd say, I have eight years. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody ever said to me, and I love this about the program, yeah. nobody ever said, you have to start your time over. Huh. And I would ask people, do you think I'm, I should start my time over? And they would say, this is going to be have to be your decision. Oh, yeah. And I'm so grateful because if anybody had said one way or the other, and I'm sure everyone had an opinion, I'm sure everyone was like, oh, she's out. She's so out. She doesn't even know it. But nobody said that. And they let me have my own experience and come to the realization that, wow, I was out. Wow. Was I out? And then I was able to to say, you know what? I'm starting my time over again. How long did it take you to, to say that? About a year. It took about a year. So it was kind of out in the real mm-hmm. world. I was still hanging on. I was like, I am not going to let go of that time. Uh-huh. I, I am not going to walk into that room and say, I am new. Yeah. I just, I, I held on to it with dear life until finally I, I thank God I surrendered and admitted it. And, and then, you know, retrospectively started my time from the day that, which happened to be Thanksgiving in the year 2008, huh. um, and decided to start my time over. Would you consider that realization uh, spiritually motivated or, or was it just a kind of a logical conscious decision? It must be both. I think it's a combination. I think the it's it's always a combination of those two things for me that I, I need to see the science, yeah. but I also needed to be uh, completely honest. Yeah. And that is one of the biggest challenges for many alcoholics, certainly for me. Yeah, that's tough. Um, yeah, is that honesty, is is admitting the powerlessness. And I did not want to admit that again. Yeah, and it's so important. So you had that experience. Right. Now, since then, and uh, so 13 years hence from that decision, you've been sober 14 years. I like to look at the time between getting sober and today. If you had to encapsulate the events, good and bad, that have occurred where Alcoholics Anonymous made a difference. What would you say? One of the most profound things I think I've experienced in in the last 14 years of of sobriety has been working with others, um, working with sponsees. Even though I had done it before, Mm -hmm. this time it really brought me to a new level of unconditional love Mm -hmm. and compassion um, and I didn't have it right away when I first started sponsoring. It's mm. something that I learned through the experience because I had judgment about people and like we all do. So I think that has been my absolute favorite part of these past years is, you know, I don't have children. And so I think a lot of people yeah. learn about unconditional love when they have children and, um, and so it was not something I'd really, truly experienced before. And because I was so coming from an alcoholic home, I didn't really have unconditional mm-hmm. love for my parents or my sibling um, because there was such trauma. So that is one of the most incredible gifts of 
my recent sobriety um, is to work with others. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable. I have a, a, a sponsee who mm-hmm. just flew in from the East coast to do her four step. And uh, I just met her for the first time. Uh, <laughs> you know, she's, she's a zoom baby and it's, it's, it's even sitting here talking to you. Yeah. It's, I find that a spiritual experience because how is it that I'm here talking to you? Right. This yeah. very moment. I mean, it's that in itself is miraculous. This kind of this journey that we're on, that we we come into contact with these people and we connect. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And it's what keeps me going. That's such a terrific gift. And it's one of those that, as they say, keeps on giving. It's always very neat. I'm sure you probably noticed mm-hmm. this, too to see the sponsees of your your own sponsees, like your grand sponsees or your great grand sponsees, you can almost tell the type of yes. program yes. your sponsee is working by looking at the people who they sponsor. And uh, it's so gratifying to know that, yes. <laughs> that the wisdom d- does get passed down, that this is a legacy of, of service and love and commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a wonderful, wonderful gift. Did mm. did you encounter any major bumps along the way that that took you down a dark path that AA kind of pulled you off of or pulled you back into the light? Uh, yes, and I think it wasn't just AA, but you know, as we talked about with the the depression, I mm-hmm. checked myself in somewhere in sobriety um, for depression. It got that bad again. And the place mm-hmm. I checked into also happened to be a rehab because now that's often, uh-huh. they're often doing many things now. They're, they're not just, they're treating, uh, they're helping people get sober, but they're also helping people with other diagnoses. And so um, that there have been some really rough patches. And I would say that AA wasn't the solution for that in particular, but thank God for it. Thank God that that is part of my life that Mm -hmm. it kept me feeling hopeful and this this concept of being of service to others i think is is the you know obviously the crux of the program is just so important and um yeah it does doesn't it and and we all go through difficult times no matter who we are and where we are and and i've certainly gone and like the the most recent was the passing of my father and um when was that that so that was almost a, it was a little over a year ago he actually passed on christmas day uh, a little you know almost a little over a year ago now and um as heartbreaking as it was the miracle of sobriety and the program is that through working the steps through making an amends to him mm-hmm. through being the daughter that i always wanted to be our relationship was not just restored but was beautiful. Hmm. And I know that that's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Um, a lot of times those relationships, you know, aren't repairable yeah. or uh, the person isn't safe to be around anymore. But in this case, it worked out. And I remember one of the things my sponsor said when my mother was dying of alcoholism and was suggesting, you know, go fly back East and mm-hmm. hold her hand and, and be of service. And, um, and she said, you're sober now. You get to be the daughter you want to be, regardless of the parent that you have. Sure. And I thought, wow, you know what? I want to be a good daughter. Yeah, of course. And that doesn't mean, right, if if, if it's a, a parent who's in any way 
abusive or anything that we jump back into an unsafe situation. But it kind of shift my perspective about and she said the same when I was started working again, the first job I had in sobriety. She said, you get to be the worker you want to be regardless <laughs> of, of the boss that you have. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my boss, I, I hate my boss, but I want to be a good worker. <laughs> and you get to be the sister you want to be regardless of the sister. And I was like, well, I want to be a good sister, even though my sister is a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it really was an incredible perspective shift, which I think, you know, is all about humility. That's extraordinary what, what you're saying, allowing your dad to depart with the feeling that you had about yourself and your own sobriety and love and that kind of thing. That's mm. so important, isn't it? Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to feel such love for him. Of course, when we feel love and then we lose something, it's it's really hard. It's heartbreaking. It is. Um, but that that is that is the deal we've made. Well, this is, has gone very, very nicely, and time has passed by very, very quickly. I had just one other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, and that was if we engage in a little bit of fantasy here, if the, <laughs> if the Max of today could go back and visit with the Max pre-sobriety mm. and could talk with that Max, what would the Max of today say to that max that might have made a difference wow oh my god that's that's a question that you know i can already feel tears welling up in my eyes that's a pretty profound and deep and beautiful i think it would be um to just hang in there and have hope and um that there there is a solution Hmm. and uh, never give up. And that despite the fact that you feel alone, you are not alone. That's that's one thing I always try to express to people who come into the program and who are new. Um, I, I always want to say, you are not alone. And feelings are not always facts. Right. And uh, I felt uniquely... Different is a nice way of putting it. I felt uniquely broken. Huh. I felt unrepairable. Yeah. And so I think I would say this this too shall pass. Yeah. We can get through this. Yeah. Uh, don't give up before, as we say, the miracle happens. Yeah. Wow. What an inspiring sentiment to conclude today, Max. You know, this has been awesome for me because... Somebody who I didn't know very well going into this, I feel like I've known you for years, and you're you're know, you're one of my I AA know. sisters now, and I, I appreciate oh, absolutely. that. Absolutely, this was so lovely and such a pleasure to talk to you. I could talk to you all day, and I can't wait to hear your story on the podcast. If you get a chance, you're amazing, and you you've just really made my day. I oh, love you, and I want to wish you all the best with your sobriety and. All the service work that you're doing, I can imagine there are some women out there mm -hmm. uh, whose lives have probably been profoundly changed by your presence in it. Mm. So uh, I wish you well, and I just want to say thanks again for doing this. Oh, what a pleasure, Howard. Thank you so much. What a wonderful gift this is to people, and I really look forward to listening to more of the, of the stories on the podcast. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy them. 
Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Max A., for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs? In fact, tell five people and ask them to tell five people. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater and greater help to more alcoholics worldwide. Of course, you can listen to all the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every episode, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.